This is an audio cast of the Frontline program Fire in Paradise, premiering October 29th on PBS and pbs.org slash frontline. Tonight, by noon, we had conceded that the town had basically burned down. One year since California's deadliest fire. The plan was completely overwhelmed by circumstances, but I think those circumstances were not unprecedented. Frontline takes you inside that day. Completely engulfed in flames. And I told my husband, I'm like, I can't run through fire. And he said, you're going to have to. Exposing the new dangers of a changing climate. We just didn't anticipate a fire that went seven and a half miles in an hour and a half. I don't think anybody envisioned that happening. Do you think you should have envisioned that happening? I th I'm not going to answer that question. At a giant power company under scrutiny. Is what PG&E did or did not do grossly negligent? They've been on probation. They violated the probation. If PG&E was an individual and not a corporation, I think by now they would be in prison. Tonight on Frontline, fire in paradise. Frontline is made possible by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. And by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Major support is provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macbound.org. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at fordfoundation.org. Additional support is provided by the Abrams Foundation, committed to excellence in journalism. The Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The John and Helen Glessner Family Trust, supporting trustworthy journalism that informs and inspires. And by the Frontline Journalism Fund, with major support from John and Joanne Hagler, and additional support from Laura DeBonis and Scott Nathan. Is, there's something about it. There's something with the country that's, the trees are beautiful. Just living in the mountains and it's healing to be here. You saw hummingbirds and butterflies. We'd sleep outside under the stars. It's a tight-knit community. Everyone is super strong and resilient up here. You never felt more safe than out there in the mountains. November 8th, 2018. Good morning, and it's uh, red flag fire danger warning is in effect. Up to uh, 45 mile per hour gusts out of the north today. Right now it's 57 degrees, humidity down to 19. Fire station captain Matt McKenzie. I woke up early the morning of the 8th the wind was very strong. Pine needles were hitting the roof, but it's a metal roof. And in my half-asleep state, I thought, is it raining? Anytime you have the winds coming with no rain, it's very nerve-wracking. And we were getting so late in the season, we were just critically dry. 
it was just like, please, blow in a storm. You know, every now and then I like to wake up early and make the guys breakfast. So when the wind woke me up, I said, well, this is a perfect time to get a jump on it. My phone was laying on the countertop next to where I was cutting up potatoes, and it illuminated. It said there was a vegetation fire in the canyon. Seven and a half miles from the town of Paradise, a fire had started beneath a high-voltage electricity tower. The line was almost 100 years old and was owned by PG&E, America's largest electricity company. Butte County DA Mike Ramsey. Fire started, as PG&E has admitted, from a piece of equipment that failed, uh, bringing a power line in contact with the steel tower. So you had shards of molten metal that got thrown down into the brush. In high winds, companies like PG&E can turn off the electricity and power lines to reduce wildfire risk. Captain Matt McKenzie. We had heard that PG&E was thinking about turning off power uh, in, in several different areas that were uh, in danger of uh, high winds and possibly something happening with power lines. But that morning, PG&E had decided not to turn off the power. It would later say this was because the winds were decreasing. I made one corner around Highway 70 to where you can actually see the Polgar Bridge. And so I took my eyes off the road for two seconds and looked up, saw it, and made my report. 6.44 a.m., 19 minutes since ignition. responding. Copy possible power lines down. Eyes on the vegetation fire. It's uh, uh, underneath the transmission line. It's coming about a 35 mile an hour sustained wind on it. The fire was by a narrow dirt track called Camp Creek Road. Captain McKenzie decided it was too dangerous to drive a fire truck down it. It's uh, gonna be very difficult access. Camp Creek Road is nearly inaccessible. He requested air support to put out the fire, but it was too windy to fly. This has uh, got potential for a major incident. It was a very sinking, very uncomfortable feeling seeing where it was at um, and seeing how small it actually was relative to where it was at. It was a manageable looking fire if I could get to it, so. But you couldn't get to it? Couldn't get to it. 7.10 a.m., 45 minutes since ignition. Uh, came out of the community of Polka to get a better look at it. Uh, uh, my guess, best guess would be 100 acres. That's heading in a direction towards Concow Lake. I'll be just above Holga heading towards Concow Lake with a rapid rate of spread. Can you repeat the uh, acreage? Estimate 2 to 300. The fire was spreading towards Concow a remote settlement of around 700 people about halfway between where the fire ignited and Paradise. Cal Fire Incident Commander, Chief John Messina. And got a couple phone calls from other chief officers asking if I was paying attention to the radio. You know, I think like a lot of people didn't really take it too serious. We get a lot of fires up there. You know, I, I, I told them, you know, it's cold. You know, it's in the 40s, it's November. It's a nuisance fire. The incident command post was set up at the hardware store at Yankee Hill. And so we were preparing to defend Concow and contain that fire. 
7.17 a.m., 52 minutes since ignition. 6.2107, going into checkout, Concal. Uh, I'll reassess him in about uh, 10 minutes. I'll get back to you. CAL FIRE and the State Fire Service began sending firefighters to tackle the blaze in Concow. CAL FIRE Captain Jeff Edson. I drove up Highway 70, and the wind was basically blowing all the smoke right over the top of us. The blaze was soon dubbed the Campfire after the road where it started. We were stopping down Concow, helped out a few residents, try to put some of the spot fires out around their house. They were relatively small. They were 10 to 15, maybe 20 feet. And then there was a point in there where the wind just kind of started picking up. And the spot fires that were not a big deal at the time started engulfing both sides of the road. My pops have been in Concow ever since I can remember, before I was born. It's always felt so special. It's at the end of Concow Road, and like the top, we always felt like nothing could hurt us there, and it was home sweet home. 21-year-old Jordan Huff often visited her granddad, who lived on his own on a small farm. He'd grow pumpkins for the grandkids, so in October, when they were ready to harvest, we'd have jack-o'-lanterns to carve, and they were Papa's pumpkins, and they were bigger than any ones you'd seen. My pops lost his leg in a farming incident, but they're, they're stubborn mountain folk. He was always outside working when we showed up, out in his wheelchair, working away. We have multiple structures already burning down here. By 7.30, the fire had picked up. The wind was spraying burning embers in every direction. A column of smoke was now visible for miles. My dad had called my pops. He was out there in his wheelchair um, with a hose, um, putting out the fires that were breaking out into his yard. And my dad was like, you know, don't worry about it. You need to go. We need to get out of here and leave. And he said, OK, I will. I'll grab the dogs and I'll go. Firefighter Jeff Edson and a colleague were now trapped down by Concow Lake. We came across four individuals that were running, and they were waving their hands at me. And you could tell they had ember burns and stuff on their skin and their hair. Three of them ran and just jumped straight in the water because they were taking so much heat. We need to uh, shut down Highway 70 and then stand by for additional resource order. At the incident command post, Chief Messina was aware this was becoming a major fire. But with firefighters in Concow trapped and aircraft unable to fly because of the wind, he didn't know how fast it was moving. Chief John Messina. We typically get our fire intelligence, what the fire's doing, how fast it's spreading from our own line personnel. Um, firefighters. Um, what was different about this day, uh, it was the fact that as soon as our firefighters engaged, they went right into rescue mode. And they, they were no longer able, nor did they really care where the fire was spreading. They were too busy on rescuing civilians and you know, ensuring that of their own safety. So we didn't get a lot of intelligence on how fast the fire was spreading. 
The fire was moving towards the town of Paradise, four miles away on the other side of a steep canyon. In the past, fires have rarely crossed the canyon. But the campfire was now spreading at a rate of 80 football fields a minute. 911, what is your emergency? I see a fire across the Feather River Canyon. The calls started coming in slowly as people were waking up in the morning, having their coffee, looking out the window, and seeing what I couldn't see. Dispatcher Carol Ladrini had been trained to handle calls reporting fires. Do you see ashes? Do you see flames? How close is it? Because kind of far off could be across the street or two canyons away. 911, what is Cal Fire normally notifies Paradise Police if a fire is threatening the town, but they hadn't done so. I want to report a fire and somebody else already reported it. Okay, is it in the Concow area and up north that way? Yep, that's it. Yeah, we're getting off to call. Thank you. Okay. As more calls came in, Ladrina says she contacted Cal Fire, and they told her the fire was north of Concow miles from paradise. Did they say anything about the size or the intensity of the fire? No. At that point, they didn't, and, and I didn't ask. Generally, a fire that far away would never even get close to paradise. Paradise police. Hello, can you tell me if there's a fire in the canyon? There's a fire that's north of Concow, up off of Highway 70. It's just creating a lot of smoke right now. Why are so many people calling about this smoke? What, what's going on? Still, at that point, I didn't know what they were seeing. So all I could do is call Cal Fire back. What I said was, can you confirm with me that this is north of Concow, that this is not in paradise? People say there's ashes falling. Yes, it's north of Concow. That's the words that I got, okay. So I continued to tell the people that were calling that we were not under threat. Yeah. 911, are you calling about the smoke? Yes, I am. How okay. come we're not seeing it on news or it's sirens it's or It's still something? new. It's north of Highway 70. Um, are we supposed to be evacuated or, or what? No, you'll be notified. There's a fire north of Concala. No danger to paradise, okay? By 7.45, the fire had crossed the canyon and was threatening paradise and the surrounding area, home to 40,000 people. Cal Fire issued an evacuation order for residents on the east side of paradise, but not for those from other parts of town. And, uh, it's raining ash okay, yeah. where I live. How far where do you live? I live on uh, Nunley. So um, at this point, where you're not in danger, but um, just stay close to your phone. 18 minutes after fire entered the town, Carol Ladrini received a call from Cal Fire. Paradise Police. Hey, it's Jennifer D. County Fire. Yeah. We've just issued mandatory evacuations for the entire town of Paradise. Are you serious? Head of Paradise Fire, Chief David Hawks. When I started as a firefighter in the mid-1980s, we had large fires. You know, it wasn't uncommon, and we'd maybe at a large fire for a week or two, maybe even a little bit longer. But then the periods would subside, and we would, we would go back, we'd regroup, and we'd get ready for the next round. 
Now, in the current fire environment, the season is much longer, the summer is much hotter, drier, less humidity, and typically our winters have been on the lower end of average. Dr. Patrick Gonzalez is a climate change scientist at UC Berkeley. We measure climate at weather stations, and when fires burn, we trace their footprint. Those types of analyses have shown that human-caused climate change has doubled wildfire since 1984 across the western United States, above what would have burned without climate change. Researchers say that in Northern California, summers have warmed by an average of 2.5 degrees in the last 50 years. At the same time, climate change has made prolonged drought more common in the area. Michael Wara is director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program at Stanford. But what we've observed over the last several fire seasons is that it doesn't rain until late in December or even early January. And that means that the landscape hasn't seen a drop of precipitation in perhaps eight months. It's that combination of factors where you get the high winds, you get the high temperatures, you have fuels that are bone dry, and you combine all of those factors into a package that is really explosive from a wildland perspective, where then if you throw a match into that package, you're going to generate a catastrophe. 8.02 AM, one hour, 37 minutes since ignition. All units, be advised, the town of Paradise is under a mandatory evacuation. The town of Paradise is under a mandatory evacuation. I was dispatched to a fire down on the east canyon edge. Paradise Police Sergeant Robert Pickering. So I slid my body camera on and went behind the house. I can hear a roaring, and I can see flames coming up from, from the canyon that were probably 30, 40 feet in height. Fire was now established on the east side of Paradise. Police went door to door to make sure people had left. Affirmative. I'm not going to be able to get to either house. The fire was swirling around the houses. It was coming in at all angles, defying any sense of gravity or any sense of, in my mind, what would be normal for a fire. Too much was happening, too much was going on, and we were not able to do more than just a couple of handful of streets. Sergeant Pickering made his way to Paradise's largest building, Feather River Hospital. Nicole Jolly is a registered nurse there. My husband texts me, and he says, hey, there's a big fire. And I said, huh. I said, I didn't see anything. Where is it coming from? He goes, out of Concow. And I said, OK, well, hopefully it doesn't cross the canyon, because then I'm going to have to evacuate the hospital. Um, and then we saw the orange glow through the patient's rooms. 8.31 a.m., two hours, six minutes since ignition. For the moment, yes. All the patients are out from downstairs. You rock. I don't know about staff, but we got them all out. Okay, very good. Sergeant Pickering. There was people that were having to carry an IV bag with them that were holding their own IV bag. And then we had people that were just coming out of surgery that had to be loaded up. No availability of ambulances to go to the hospital. We have fire on. Um, campus now, but I need ambulances. 
doctors pulled up with their SUVs and were putting patients in with doctors. Perfect. Are you helping get people out here? Yeah. Okay. And nurses yep. are driving their own private vehicles and taking out their car seats and leaving them on the side of the hospital ground. It wasn't a normal evacuation that we've been planning and, and rehearsing. It was so fast. What was that? We got room for one more right here as well. With anywhere from a few minutes to 15, 20 minutes, everything around the hospital was burning and on fire. It went black real quick. Um, it felt like it felt like working a night shift. I'm not really safe anywhere. We're gonna lose the hospital. stuck in traffic for quite a while in the hospital as everything around us is on fire. We have no cell service. Our radios are here. Yeah. I don't know what we're going to do, man. There's nothing we can do. They got to get the roads clear. Well, where's the fire department? Where's the hoses? Why isn't anybody putting these fires out? You know, it was so confusing. Uh, negative. Uh, it's completely blocked. Westbound. Completely blocked. Southbound. What? It's right here. It's everywhere. We are 100% surrounded by fire. I assumed that the fire was right there next to me. I didn't know at the time that the fire had jumped all the way into paradise. Nobody said anything to us. Nobody said, hey, all of paradise is on fire. Picture it like a snow blizzard. There was just thousands upon thousands of embers blowing through the air. Chief David Hawks. It was really hard to get your mind around how rapidly it was developing. In less than an hour, the fire swept across the town of Paradise overwhelming the firefighters' efforts to stop it. The homes, the homes are the smoke, swirling with burning pine needles and pieces of houses, turned day to night. An area would catch on fire, homes would catch on fire, generating heat, which would throw more embers. That would start another fire. Chief John Messina. And those winds can push those embers a long ways, and it just kind of perpetuates into one big fire at once. There was no, there was no flaming front. In a typical fire, the smoke travels straight up, where cooler air puts out most of the embers. But in this fire, winds high up of up to 100 miles an hour were blowing the embers sideways. The wind aloft that lofted the embers was a lot stronger wind than the wind at the surface. Jim Brochiers is the Paradise Emergency Operations Coordinator. And that's what allowed it to throw fireballs all over our town. I think that's what differentiates this fire from the other fires, that they all had a path, and this one didn't. It really didn't. It had paths. It had a lot of paths. Um, 
and they were all happening at the same time. There was like no sirens or warnings or anything. Jordan Huff. No one telling anyone for sure what was happening. So we're like, oh, let's go check it out. We just get in the car and we can't even pull out because there was cars all the way down. You couldn't even get on the road. Jordan Huff was trying to leave with her boyfriend along Paradise's main road, Skyway. God. Oh, there's a power line in the road. Everything was red. Everything just seemed like panic. I feel the heat, dude. Literally so scared. I really want to make it. I started freaking out because the fire's coming at us and I didn't want to see it. I didn't want to feel it. Like, I didn't want to be there. I just kind of wanted to disappear because I couldn't believe this was happening. Holy It was suffering moving that slow. Like, I didn't understand why not everyone was flooring it. Like, we were all about to burn alive. Like, why is it everyone, like, full speed ahead, like, why are we stuck? Like, why, how? Chief David Hawks. The town of Paradise and the Upper Ridge has had a community evacuation plan since the late 90s. In the early 2000s, that plan was updated and included maps with zones in them. Paradise is limited by the number of routes out of town. Each fire is different. You know, fires come from different directions. So we had to look at varying scenarios and determine what intersections would need controlling under a normally developing fire. The emergency planners had divided the town into 14 zones. They would be evacuated in turn, depending on where the fire came from. Jim Brochers. We actually had a trial run in 2008. We evacuated the zones on the east side of town for a fire coming from Concow. The whole lesson learned from 2008 was the more you evacuate, the more cars on the road, the more difficult it is to evacuate the town. So we didn't have a plan to evacuate the entire town at once, mostly because it wouldn't work. Our plan became, I think, probably one of the most elaborate plans in the state. In a review after the 2008 fire, a Butte County grand jury warned that the town's roads had serious capacity limitations and made a number of recommendations, including widening the evacuation routes. The county's governing board implemented some of the recommendations, but there was no funding to widen all of the roads. One of my personal responses to the grand jury was, if you gave us 10 or $15 million, maybe 20 million to build new roads, off the ridge, um, maybe we could uh, develop a plan that would get people off the ridge, you know, everyone off the ridge at one time. Roads cost a lot of money. These roads would be roads that on an average day, they're built for traffic that doesn't exist. And then you say, we're gonna build four lanes that aren't gonna be used except once in a, in a half century. <laughs> yeah, that, that's gonna be a pretty hard asked to make. 9.02 a.m., two hours, 37 minutes since ignition. There were now over 350 firefighters in Paradise. But with burning embers causing new fires all across the town, there was no clear front line for them to fight. Chief John Messina. We conceded, I can tell you, it was 9.23 in the morning. We conceded that 
maintaining the evacuation routes and civilian rescue was our only objective that day. And there was no orders given that contradicted that. Although the entire town was under an evacuation order, thousands of residents were still at home. My mom had me at 41. For many years, we were like best friends. We'd rent out Redbox movies from Safeway, which was right next door, and hang out, and I could tell her anything. 25-year-old Christina Taft and her mother, Victoria, lived in Central Paradise. I wasn't thinking it was that serious at first. And then the shower, I started to smell smoke. I was definitely panicked. I thought it could all, like, burn. I told that to my mom, and she just, she didn't want to listen to that negativity. We weren't really, like, arguing. It was just kind of like I was saying stuff and then packing up everything I could into the car, like, so it was completely filled in the trunk and the back seat and just with the front seat, you know, for my mom. It went on for an hour, kind of. She was just not really packing. She didn't get out of her pajamas. And then she started calling other people to find out what was happening. And looking outside, it started getting, you know, traffic and darker. I, you know, I just didn't know what to do. Like, it was either I leave or I stay and risk my own life. And I had a life to live. Like, I told her that, like, I have a life to live. And she was just kind of like talking to the people on the phone and they weren't telling her leave. Christina joined the thousands of others evacuating the town. Her mom refused to come with her. It was very slow leaving, but it was all burnt like all the way down. People were stopping and getting people in their cars and I was stuck so I couldn't go back even though it wasn't very far away. It just was horrible because I kept calling my mom and it just didn't work. Christina and her mother had not received an official evacuation order. The county sheriff's office was using a new alert system called Code Red. It had an option to send out a mass alert to every Paradise resident. But that morning, they didn't use it. Butte County Sheriff Corey Honey. This was an extraordinarily chaotic situation. There was difficulty in terms of structuring the, um, the area that uh, we wanted to target. We had one person who was working to try to get that message out. I can assure you from the standpoint of the sheriff's office, nobody was waiting around uh, uh, to notify people. It wasn't as though this, any delay, was calculated or intentional. They did send out alerts using another feature that informed residents zone by zone, but only those who had signed up. Jim Brochiers. We knew that signups were not where they needed to be, but we believed that that was the future, and our big campaign for 2019 was to really increase the number of people signed up for Code Red. More than half of residents had not signed up, including Christina and her mother. And many of those who had still didn't get a notification. Sheriff Honey. Cell phone towers went down. The networks were so clogged that we couldn't get through. It was an event that literally outpaced all of our resources almost immediately, uh, literally outpaced all of the planning that had been done prior to this. And ultimately, people have to be responsible for their own safety. The best person to craft an evacuation plan for you is you. 
9.31 a.m., three hours, six minutes since ignition. This is me trying to evacuate. Pence Road is on fire. Everything is burnt. After evacuating the hospital, nurse Nicole Jolly was driving south. She turned off Pence Road onto a side street, Pearson Road. Ahead of her, cars were already on fire and had been abandoned. I'm getting down into this ravine, and I kind of look going, oh, this, this isn't good, because this fire is blowing so fast. The road's completely engulfed in flames, and we're stuck in the middle of it. That tree could come down on me at any moment. This is ridiculous, and I'm stuck behind these stupid And I'm on, my, on the phone with my husband, and I'm screaming for him. I'm like, Nick, you gotta get to me. You have to hurry, because I'm not gonna make it. And he said, I'm trying. I'm gonna get to you. And I'm like, I'm gonna die. And I'm, I'm so sorry. And my car's starting to fill up with smoke at that point. And I told my husband, I'm like, the car's filling up with smoke. I have to get out of the car. And he's like, get out and run. And I'm like, I can't get out and run. You don't understand, there's fire everywhere and I can't run through fire. And he said, you're gonna have to. Michael Wara, Stanford University. The town of Paradise, almost more than any other town that I've heard of, had really thought about the issue of fire and evacuation and they had a plan. And the plan was completely overwhelmed by circumstances. I think those circumstances were not unprecedented. We have had a number of fires over the last several years prior to the campfire that had some of the characteristics. In particular, the rate of spread and the total ineffectiveness of any kind of suppression effort. Climate change has contributed to making fires bigger and more frequent. 10 of the 20 most destructive fires in California have happened in the last four years. Fires are different today. You need to plan differently. You have communities that say, we have our evacuation plan, but if the plan involves driving down a road like the one in Paradise that was essentially blocked by the fire, that's not a very good plan. If the road is narrow and will become gridlocked, not a very good plan. Head of Paradise Fire, Chief David Hawks. So in uh, about 2015, we developed this binder, and we carry this binder in our vehicles. This binder includes evacuation plans and traffic plans, um, evacuation plans for every community, Foothill community in Butte County. Why, given that there have been very fast-moving fires before, was it not part of the planning that it might be a possibility to have a fire of this speed and intensity? I don't think we've ever seen that before. So I don't think that it was something that, that was ever envisioned. As far as modeling, we did plan for a rapidly developing fire. We just did not plan for, we just did not anticipate a fire that went seven and a half miles in an hour and a half. I don't think anybody envisioned that happening. Do you think you should have envisioned that happening? I th I'm not gonna answer that question. We've got four trapped in the basement, four people trapped in the basement. An hour and a half after fire hit paradise, thousands were trying to leave, but many others were trapped in their homes. 
18 miles from the fire, Cal Fire's emergency center was receiving 911 calls. The phones rang and rang and rang, and they didn't stop. Um, I have a, a man that um, is bedridden, and we, we need to transport him, evacuate him. It was loud, it was, it was noisy, it was constant. Cal Fire Emergency Center Captain Stacer Hartshorn. Okay, I'll relay the information and, and see what they can do, okay? Okay, how do I, how do I know what's going to happen? Uh, Ma'am, I don't know. Um, it's, it's, uh, this is a, just a, a very major fire. I answered the phone and I heard a lady. Actually, I heard three ladies. Are, are you trapped? Yes. Is your, okay. They were coughing, choking. I, she had a hard time even telling me exactly where they were. Ma'am, you need to get out of the house. We can't. They were in a room with, she told me, no windows. I, I can't get out. And I couldn't, I couldn't leave her. Ma'am, how many people? Three. We're trying to get some help over to you. It started getting real staticky. And I had no response. I was talking to myself. And after nine minutes and, and something, the phone went dead. I just couldn't help her. And I just had to hit the next answer, the 911, and start all over. By mid-morning, firefighters were trying to make it down the road where Nicole Jolly was stranded. The temperature at the center of the fire was now around 1,800 degrees. Why are these people here? They need to get out of here. I'm running up this hill, and it's a pretty steep hill, and I couldn't see anything. And I'm putting my hand over my eyes, and the flames are just hitting the side of me. I just was thinking, please let there be a vehicle or something that I can jump into, because I was so hot at that point. And I ended up touching the back of a fire engine. And I'm like, oh, yay, a fire engine. I sat in the center, and we were stuck. And we were stopped. And I'm like, why aren't we moving? And he's like, well, there's cars on fire all around us. Like, we're in a fire engine. This is what this thing is built for, you know? It's, it's, this thing's meant to go through fire. No, these things are not meant to go through fire. I could start hearing a distress call for air support. Cal Fire bulldozer operator Joe Kennedy. And you could hear the urgency in their voices on the radio. I remember it being pitch black outside and zero visibility and knowing that that was impossible. I answered him back inappropriately uh, using his first name. I said, John, where are you? Determined to get to his colleagues, Joe Kennedy drove a bulldozer through the flames. We're hearing this noise coming up behind us. It was really loud. It was 
this clinking chains. You could hear it was like thunk, 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 thunk. I started taking fully involved vehicles and moving them away the best I could. And he's flipping them over, and it's just a miracle. And he cleared this way for us. What happened on Pearson Road, we don't train for. They don't teach us how to move fully involved cars. They teach us how to avoid that. There were several times where I, it crossed my mind that this was a very bad idea. But it, people were counting on me to keep going and uh, not stop. Joe Kennedy managed to clear the road so Nicole and the firefighters could get to safety. He continued working for another 24 hours. He kept saving people on that road. No AC, no fire blankets, just glass windows in the middle of this inferno. The fire had now burned around 20,000 acres and was visible from space. Chief John Messina. Our air attack officer gave a report where the fire was and how much was being impacted. He basically said the fires progressed all the way through town. And these reports of civilians trapped and rescues and you know, we'd already had reports of a lot of fatalities. And by noon, we had conceded that the town had basically burned down. It took only four hours for Paradise to be destroyed. By the end of the day, 50,000 people had managed to escape, scattering to neighboring towns. Jordan Huff. There was literally a point on the road where it went from hell so there was a sky again, and there was air to breathe, and it was this type of feeling that changes your whole entire life. I just got this chance to be able to live again. Nicole Jolly. My mom took us back to the house that my kids were staying at, and I see my husband just pacing in the driveway, and he's just pacing and pacing and pacing, and I'm like, Mom, you need to go. You need to get down there. I see Nick, and she's like, Nicole, we're in a residential area. I can't, I can't drive fast, and I'm like, then you need to let me out. And I got out of the car and I ran faster than she was driving. And I just grabbed onto my husband and I'll never forget what he said. He said, I thought I almost lost you. And I'm like, I know. A week after the fire started, more than 5,000 firefighters were tackling the blaze from the ground and the sky. There was nothing standing, and there were still homes burning. You know, power lines were down, cars were burned, they were still burning. It looked like a war zone. It looked like bombs had been dropped on the town. It was heartbreaking to me. I grew up in that town. Um, I graduated from high school in that town. I was the fire chief in that town and honored to be the fire chief in that town. Um, and it was heartbreaking to see. Paradise burned for over two weeks. Finally, 
The first winter rains came and put the fire out. It had burned 153,000 acres, an area the size of Chicago. It was the most destructive fire California had ever seen. Around 30,000 people lost their homes. It took many weeks to identify those who died. It was actually Thanksgiving Day when they confirmed it. Christina Taft had not heard from her mother since the morning of the fire. She was found on the property in the living room. She was still inside. She wasn't able to get out and probably like, it was right by the window. So it was really horrible imagining that. She didn't probably know what to do or something. I don't think she really realized it was as bad as it was. I blamed myself, I blamed authority, I blamed the other people, I blamed a lot of things, and um, I'm not really angry at her. People, I think, they expect if there's an emergency, they'll get notified. I think if we did have an order, it would have made a difference to my mom. 85 people perished in the campfire. The majority were over 65 years old. Some were trapped in their cars, others were still in their homes. 911 dispatcher Carol Adrini. It breaks my heart that they got a false sense of security. It breaks my heart that I and anybody else that was answering the phone that day was not able to give them more information, better information, faster information. It kind of snowballs on you. Could you have got evacuation orders out to communities that were likely to be hit before they were hit? I mean, we can always Monday you know, Monday quarterback it. Chief John Messina. I know what you're saying, but no, I mean, maybe, maybe five minutes earlier, but the issue wasn't how fast we notified the public. Uh, it was how fast we could get them off the hill. The transportation system would only hold so many vehicles, and we were trying to put more vehicles on the road than it could hold. Chief David Hawks. I have no doubt in my mind that if we, as public safety agencies, had not done what we did, the conditions would have been much worse and there would have been more loss of life. It was bad, but this fire affected tens of thousands of people in a matter of a few hours. Um, the plan was implemented. I, I'm, I'm very confident in saying it was, it was successful. Was it flawless? Absolutely not. We never gave up hope. You know, we kept looking, and he can't read or write, so we thought maybe he couldn't get in contact with us. Jordan Hoff was waiting for news about her grandfather, TK, who had been up in Concow. Say it was two weeks later, my mom called me, and she was all like, Jordan, I knew what the phone call was because, like, my mom doesn't call to talk. And she told me um, they found Bob's body. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, yeah, they found that body in the home. 
and I was like, oh, and you know, I just cried. I didn't know what to say, and she asked me if I'm okay, and I just hung up the phone because you're not okay. We went out there on December 4th, me and my dad only. Literally everything is gone, except, you know, you go out to the back fence and you see a wheelchair, you see his watering hose burnt to a crisp bald way drag all the way right next to the wheelchair and a bucket of water. Your mind like wants to make an image, but you don't really want to make an image, but it does it anyways. And, and man, is it crazy to have an image like that in your head. He was insanely tough and smart and he was a gentle giant. DA Mike Ramsey. Just going around the community and you see someone that you haven't seen for a while. Where were you? What happened to you? What happened to your family? It's our local 9-11. This is a day that we will always remember. November 8th uh, will always be a day that will just seared in the collective consciousness of our community. Six months after the fire, the Butte County District Attorney launched an investigation into whether to bring criminal charges against PG&E, the company whose power line had started the fire. Is what PG&E did or did not do grossly negligent, something that is beyond or, and well beyond ordinary negligence? One of the charges uh, that we're looking at under California Penal Code Section 452 is reckless arson. To prove the defendant is guilty of this crime, the people must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that one, the defendant burned or caused to be burned property uh, or forest land. Pretty simple. We've got that that the fire burned an inhabited structure, the fire caused great bodily injury to another person. Okay, we've got structures, nearly 14,000, 85 people got that element. The element that is the, the last element, and says, and the defendant did so recklessly. PG&E has a long history of safety violations and a criminal conviction for a gas explosion in 2010. Its equipment has been linked to many destructive fires in California in recent years. This is a company that was fined hundreds of times and faced more than two, almost $3 billion worth of fines. Wall Street Journal senior energy reporter Russell Gold. You know, if PG&E was an individual and not a corporation, I think by now they would be in prison. There's just been repeat offenders. They've been on probation. They violated the probation. Uh, the problem is you can't take a corporation and put it into prison. In the months after the fire, reporters at the Wall Street Journal discovered that PG&E had been warned its transmission towers were aging and that components might fail. In 2010, they had an outside contractor come in and they looked at this and said, the average age of your towers is 68 years old, but the mean life expectancy is only 65. So, you know, in, in a sense, PG&E was sort of playing with fire over the years. They were basically saying, look, we will let these transmission lines age in place, and if there's a problem with one of them, we'll go out and fix it. Stanford's Michael Wara. Without climate change, the consequences of failure of a transmission line is relatively modest. It falls down, perhaps, or and it causes a fire, and the fire department comes and puts it out. 
So the system has been maintained, you know, with some preventative maintenance, but also with a philosophy that it can be run until it breaks. The thing is that the costs have changed. The risks have changed. PG&E declined to be interviewed by Frontline, but said in a statement that the company disagrees with any suggestion that it knew of any specific maintenance conditions that caused the campfire, and nonetheless deferred work that would have addressed those conditions. It added, since 2010, PG&E has spent hundreds of millions on line preventative work. Russell Gold. PG&E is taking this extraordinary step of saying, look, we can't handle this liability anymore. So that during the days, red flag days, when there is low humidity and high wind, we're just going to shut off the power. And it's sort of a stunning thing to think about, but there increasingly um, are days and, and multiple days in Northern California where communities suddenly don't have power anymore. PG&E has now filed for bankruptcy protection because of liabilities arising from wildfires. It estimates that it could face at least $10.5 billion in damages from the campfire alone. I think this is one of the first real climate adaptation problems that at least America has confronted. Michael Wara. In this is not a static problem. We have a problem that's going to grow worse inevitably over the next several decades. Some scientists believe that fires in California could increase in size dramatically by the middle of the century if temperatures continue to rise. Everything was perfect that day for a massive destructive incident to do what it did. Paradise Captain Matt McKenzie. And it's in place everywhere, everywhere in California, Arizona, Nevada, Washington, Oregon. And it's like, what's, you don't even want to think about it. Like, what's next? Can it be worse than that? And the answer is yes. Go to pbs.org slash frontline for more on PG&E. Is what PG&E did or did not do grossly negligent? And more about the emergency alert system in Paradise. People, I think, they expect if there's an emergency, they'll get notified. I think if we did have an order, it would have made a difference to my mom. Connect to the Frontline community on Facebook and Twitter and watch anytime on the PBS video app or pbs.org frontline. Frontline is made possible by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. And by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Major support is provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macbound.org. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at fordfoundation.org. Additional support is provided by the Abrams Foundation, committed to excellence in journalism. The Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The John and Helen Glessner Family Trust, supporting trustworthy journalism that informs and inspires. And by the Frontline Journalism Fund, with major support from John and Joanne Hagler, and additional support from Laura DeBonis and Scott Nathan.
Fire in Paradise was produced and directed by Jane McMullen, co-produced by Ellen Newton, and senior produced by Dan Edge. The managing editor of Frontline is Andrew Metz. The executive producer of Frontline is Rainey Aronson-Roth. To order Frontline's Fire in Paradise on DVD, visit Shop PBS or call 1-800-PLAY-PBS. This program is also available on Amazon Prime Video.